welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host and uh, good, nice, faithful servant, Dean Deloff. And I'm the bad servant, the one that you don't like. I'm taking your lunch money. Oh, it's me, boy. Matt Bernico. The lunch lady uh, let me not pay for my lunch today. I got a free lunch, and I turned right around, and I shook down old Jimmy Wilkins for his chocolate milk money. Folks, this is a joke about the Bible, and I'm really worried now that I've been making sort of a prolonged (laughs) joke about it. No one knows what I'm talking about. Um, Uh, They're going to know by the end, and then you can come back and re-listen. Just put this episode on repeat. You're going to want to hear it a couple times. That's right. That's what you need to do. This episode is a long audio TikTok, basically. You know, sometimes I watch a TikTok and they're so short and I find myself suddenly watching it over again by complete accident. Who knew that the recipe the whole time was going to get me back to the beginning of this finished product? And this podcast is just the same thing. (laughs) The joke will make sense. You have to listen to it twice, though. That's the marketing plan of our podcast. (laughs) That's right. So last week we started talking through this book by William Herzog called uh, Parables as Subversive Speech. It's really interesting. We got into some of the historical nuance of a parable from Mark, and it was a, a rich vein that we weren't done mining. What a bad <laughs> what a bad analogy. Um, if you <laughs> haven't read the book, it is good. You should go back and listen to that episode, get the hot scoop on uh, language, interpretation of the Bible, and so on. But we decided to keep going with it this time around, and we're going to work on another parable particularly a weird one in Matthew 18, the parable of the unmerciful servant. And we talked about the passage on a previous episode and noted the theme of debt forgiveness. And that is still very interesting. And it's a a theme that comes out in Herzog's book. But there is a lot of other stuff going on in this parable that make it even more interesting. So we've gotten some good reviews. People like the Magnificast Bible study. And you know what? I do, too. I think... uh, It's going well so far, and this parable is extremely weird, and I think that's what I'm into now. I'm into the Bible studies that are just the weirdest readings of the weirdest parables, and that's what we're going to try to do this time around. Yeah, me too. The weirdest readings are the weirdest parables. I love it. I love it because it's um, once you know it, you can't kind of look away from it, and uh, next time you do go to a Bible study, you can be like, um, you can set everyone straight and be a really annoying person, (laughs) and People love that. If there's one thing that people love, it's when you are annoying about the Bible. That's that's what people love most. That's right. You can you can uh, push your glasses up and take out your your copy of the Bible, <laughs> which is marked up with doodles of Karl Marx in the margins and say, excuse me, pastor. This parable, it doesn't mean what you think it means. It's <laughs> um, my derogatory nerd voice. Before we jump into it, though, let me preface this conversation by saying that the main point of Herzog's book, parables as persuasive speech is to read Jesus's parables in light of their historical context rather than their theological allegory. Uh, Last week we talked about how language is complicated and uh, personally as two uh, postmodern scholars of religion, we think that you can read them in a lot of different ways and there's not sort of like one primary reading. I think kind of Herzog has a similar vibe about him, but maybe different than ours. Anyways, Herzog's point is that uh, Christians have trained themselves to think of the setting and place of parables as like kind of inconsequential backdrops, you know, and and they're just all allegory. Uh, There's a king, there's a vineyard owner, there's a a laborer in the field, and all those people are just kind of like, you know, they're ciphers for something or or another. 
Um, however, uh, through some historical deep dives, Herzog demonstrates that all of that background stuff could really matter, or it could give you a type of reading of the text that gives you something different than uh, than the usual sort of allegory or the usual, uh, you know, king as cipher for God or uh, labor as cipher for us or whatever, right? So uh, I think what Herzog gives is uh, this like sort of historically grounded reading of the Bible that is not like final in any way. It's not like uh, ultimate, I think I would want to push, but it is fun and cool and uh, it gives you something, you know, good to hold on to. Yeah, I think maybe even before we get into the parable itself, uh, there's a couple more things we could say about kind of biblical scholarship in general. Oh, I should add too. I yeah. went and uh, about this parable just to complicate the reading, because last time we were talking about how there are lots of ways to read a read, uh, you know, a passage. And maybe you could pull out some even other radical themes if you if you did read it in sort of an allegorical way or find some different angles and to make good on that promise or maybe to demonstrate it. I found that this parable is also discussed in the Gospel in Salentiname. So we'll uh, we'll get to that later and kind of see how and if uh, Herzog's reading and the reading of those folks kind of overlap. But uh, before we get there, yeah, speaking about just biblical interpretation, I think one thing that attracts me to this book is Herzog is in dialogue with all these historical scholars, people trying to reconstruct basically the historical setting of uh, of the parables, reconstruct a vision of Jesus, the the first century and kind of see what shakes out. And Herzog's invested in that conversation for important reasons. But because he has this other investment in liberation theology, like we talked about last week, he has this interest in Paulo Freire and Brazilian kind of popular education and so on. It also gives him this really unique way of actually making that historical research active and kind of seeing what's going on there. And there's a handful of other biblical scholars that do this too. Um, one famous one is Norman Gottwald, who's a Old Testament scholar and does all this really fascinating work, kind of looking through a Marxist materialist lens to reconstruct uh, a lot of the political economy that is going on in ancient Israel and so on. So there's a a cool tradition of doing this. But what I love about Herzog's kind of dialogue with that historical tradition is most of that historical work is done by people who are also, I don't know how to Put it politely like they're they're bourgeois liberal readings of the Bible, I guess. Right. And uh, Herzog is like, OK, yes, we should understand the history that's going on here, but we shouldn't kind of filter our interpretation through the lens of bourgeois politics or a bourgeois Jesus. And that's what I really like about it. And what I think is, uh, I don't know, sometimes even lacking in biblical studies, certainly lacking in in my experience in a lot of uh, <laughs> sermons that I've heard in my life. Um, even those folks who are willing to look at that historical piece, they uh, maybe aren't aware of even that how our, our own kind of political biases, um, you know, present a bit of a lens. So anyway, just a, a note about that and kind of a fun thing to be thinking about how we read the Bible. Yeah, totally, totally. There's also something really interesting that, that there's like a perform a performative element to it as well. Like when, by connecting Freire to Jesus in the way that uh, Herzog does, it kind of, you know, it activates not I mean this is specifically trying to get to the bottom of like what's happening in those parables but it does kind of like make you think mm-hmm. uh that uh what Jesus is doing and what Freire is doing is maybe something that uh Christians could be invested into and in sort of interrogating the situations that they're in and and speaking to uh to those situations so anyways um a lot of interesting stuff we'll get into it more here in a hot second but before we do 
we have to read the Bible first. Right. It's so important. You couldn't you couldn't do it without it. Um, so this time around, we are talking about the unmerciful servant. In case you didn't catch that great lunch lady joke at the beginning, uh, joke is maybe a is a is maybe a, a strong word for what we were doing. But anyways, it's there. Anyways, this is Matthew 18, 23 through 35. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Yikes. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. And he grabbed him, and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master, the king, everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all of the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured, yikes again, (laughs) until he should pay back all that he owes. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother and sister from your heart. Dean, this is a big one. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of things happening in this one. Uh, were you were you thinking about this uh, parable without the historical background? Tell me what's going on here. How would you read this as a as a naive, dumb idiot in Bible study? Yeah, yeah. Well, as a person who has a lot of experience in exactly that role, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I think the standard face value reading here is uh, one that, at least for me, naturally tends to that allegorical stuff, right? God is the king. He's got the power to forgive all that debt. And uh, he wants you to go out and do the same thing. And so God's naturally the king and uh, you're, you know, supposed to kind of find yourself in the parable. Are you the person who's not forgiving someone, but you're turning around and turning the screws on them instead? Or are you, uh, I don't know, (laughs) are you somebody who thinks that you could kind of pay it forward with that forgiveness or whatever? And I think that just like in those kind of theologies that uh, we talked about last week, um, that's a a term that Herzog uses to kind of talk about this, this habit that we have of reading um, where we see these different moments in, in parables as types or kind of theological allegorical moments for us to imagine ourselves in. Uh, just like with those theologies, it's really easy if you have no historical context to make this a pretty clean, cut and dried parable, right? God is the king. Uh, God forgives you. You better go forgive. Otherwise, you're going to get tortured. You're going to go to hell. That's the, <laughs> the evangelical uh, appendix, I guess, at the end. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, I agree. I think that that's exactly how I would have read it. And in fact, I think we've read it that way on this podcast before. (laughs) I guess maybe we were wrong or maybe it was just a different way of reading it. I think that's probably better. We were right in an alternative way. Yeah, we we had an alternative reading that was actually pretty good. (laughs) Um, Okay, but uh, Herzog gives us some different ways to think about this. And uh, he gives some details that I don't think changes. It doesn't really change the the story 
like it doesn't change the moral of the story, but it does significantly change the context of the story and it kind of changes the weight of some of these things and it makes you think differently about them. The thing that kind of throws me about Herzog's reading is that he brings in all of this um, really in-depth historical analysis, like uh, an explanation of like, I, I don't know, how monarchies and the courts and the, the sort of like bureaucratic system of servants might have worked in in this like particular era, right? He brings all of this in. And it's all super interesting. But at the same time, the um, this passage does open with a pretty interesting statement. The kingdom of heaven is like this, right? And uh, there's a pretty significant part of Herzog where he's trying to explain that this is an addition to the, the parable that Jesus might have told. And uh, that's an interesting idea. And I don't really know how you can know that historically, but I'll leave it up to the experts <laughs> what that stand. I'm not so interested in that part. There's a sort of sense in which he's trying to get behind the text and like tell you, you know, what's maybe the Jesus part and what's the Matthean part of the text. And I, I don't know um, how I feel about that or I, I don't even know, how, I guess, how to judge that. Um, but he does say it. He does say that the the kingdom of heaven part, it might be sort of a tacked on thing um, after the fact or tacked on in the Gospels. Mm -hmm. And that obviously is helpful for Herzog because he doesn't want you to allegorize it. And so if you erase that bit, then he uh, (laughs) he has an easier time maybe thinking of alternative readings. But I think there's also a way he he comes back around to it at the end of kind of working it in, I guess, that phrase or thinking through what it would mean for Jesus to say that. So there's something to it. But I agree. It's like the drive to get behind the text is a fun exercise, but that's kind of it. <laughs> it doesn't uh, it doesn't establish uh, anything else because the fact is the text that we have says what it says. Right. And uh, as we all know, as good people who read French philosophy on this podcast, uh, there's nothing outside <laughs> the text. The text is what it is. And uh, you can't get outside of it. You can't get behind it. You can only uh, deal with it as it comes to you. And I mean, Saying that is a bit contradictory because the whole point of this uh, this book and this episode is to say, well, could we try to get a little bit more uh, around the text, maybe? Um, but uh, I think that might be a bit of a different exercise than you know trying to cobble together um, how the text itself got uh, put together that way. Totally, yeah. I mean, all that say, I think that that part of this book, uh, the sort of getting behind, is extremely speculative and. Fine. I don't know. That's okay. <laughs> it's interesting. It's interesting to think about, but uh, it, to me, it, it doesn't quite do it. But do, it doesn't matter. Um, let's let's follow Herzog along here and try to resist uh, the temptation to be allegorical. So the one one place we can start doing that is is maybe just asking some questions about like the characters of the story. So there's the king. There's the servant. There's the other servant, uh, the one who gets uh, choked. <laughs> Um, and those are kind of the characters, right? Um, and the context is, uh, uh, you know, a really, I don't know, turn of the millennia, like court <laughs> in Palestine, I suppose. I don't know. It's hard, hard to know specifically, but I think those are at least the context, you know, that Jesus is telling these, these stories in. So, uh, let's start off with the king. Um, Herzog says this, the parable is set in the court of a ruler Most likely, this ruler was a client king of the Roman world with whom Jesus' hearers were familiar, although one cannot be certain because the parable may be evoking popular ideas of court life just as easily as it may be describing, um, uh, you know, a particular king or something. Uh, He goes on to say that the king was an elite belonging to the top 1 to 2% of the population. 
He had engaged in an intense power struggle with other equally ambitious aristocrats for the most lucrative prize, uh, which is the control of the state or the political apparatus. And then um, maybe to kind of round this this character out, uh, Herzog says, whether the king depicted here is Jewish or Gentile is a moot point. The history of the Hasmonean and Herodian rulers in Palestine suggests that it would be difficult to differentiate them from their Hellenistic or Roman counterparts. All of them ruled aristocratic empires, and all of them used similar means to pursue common ends. So this this quick picture of the king here is important because um, this is a person that people don't like. <laughs> you know, the people who are listening to Jesus's stories, to the parables, they're not thinking, they are not like us. They are not thinking, oh, well, the king is an easy stand-in for God in this situation. No, of course not. They they hear the word king and they think, oh, it's those assholes <laughs> that mm-hmm. uh, that uh, they games of the game of thrown their way up into power, and now they're holding on to it. And I guess some of them are worse than others. Some of them are particularly bad, <laughs> but it's not like uh, the people hearing this, the the peasants of you know whatever turn of the millennia Palestine are are hearing this and uh, thinking, ah, king, you mean God. Exactly. And I think that is probably the biggest lesson I'm taking away from this book in general is if you want to understand what it would be like to be a peasant hearing Jesus's parables, you have to understand that you would be very exploited. And that would be the one thing that you do know about your life, (laughs) that you are a person who is exploited and you wouldn't identify with the king. Right. It would be very hard for Jesus to tell a parable with the king being the hero in such a way that the peasants would be like, aha, we we want to identify with that character, right? And I think we mentioned this also last week, but there's this temptation after Christianity has especially passed through a stage of feudalism, and even now today is, you know, basically still a big infrastructure for the power in the world. Um, Kings are, you know, valorized characters once Christianity becomes an empire, as opposed to being the kind of natural, maybe target of your scorn or frustration. Um, Maybe uh, if you were to, like, retell the story, I guess you'd have to tell it in such a way that it would be like, I don't know, a a big capitalist CEO (laughs) is out there (laughs) and he forgives the debt owed to him by, you know, a a mid-level manager or something like, I don't know how you would really kind of find an analogy, but you'd have to find it's, it's a class hatred issue, right? At the end of the day, the people do know who's exploiting them and uh, they're not going to rush to identify that person with God, (laughs) which I think is important. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, even within the context of the Bible, right? Like, um, Jesus and his family. Well, I mean, Mary, she's Mary and Joseph. They take Jesus. Jesus doesn't have a lot of agency in the story, but they have to escape <laughs> through, you know, through Egypt after he's born because, uh, one of the Kings is, uh, killing all of the babies, <laughs> right? right, right? Exactly. It's not like these, uh, these characters are great and beloved, I'm sure by the, uh, the peasant class. Yeah. And you don't find in the Bible either a lot of, um, mythical stories that make kings out to be heroes. I mean, even the kings that are held up as good or wise in the Bible, like David or Solomon, are extremely messed up, right? Like, right. Uh, they're not, <laughs> not great good. characters. It's not like the kind of fairy tale king that we might think of uh, in our own time, right? This isn't like, I don't know, Narnia world or something where there's like the good <laughs> king out there and, uh, you know, protects his, his feudal lands and so on from the evil folks out there. Uh, the king is bad. that's actually a very funny analogy to kind of filter it through though right because c.s lewis did write an entire sort of fantasy world where jesus is a king <laughs> right, in kind of right. this weird way yeah that's exactly right this has become an extremely anti-c.s lewis podcast uh <laughs> um 
Yeah, but the Bible has an, an anti-kingly tradition all the way back to 1 Samuel, right? Where the people are like, give us a king. And God says, you really don't want me to. And finally, they demand it. And God says, fine, I'll give you a king. But listen, it's going to be a bad time. You're going to complain about it. And he's going to make you fight all his wars. And he's going to get rich. And you're going to be pissed. And that's the story of the scriptures is, is exactly that drama playing out. So it just makes sense to see Jesus, uh, you know, calling on that tradition, not uh, introducing something new by creating kind of a, a valoristic king. Yeah, that's right. Herzog does note note in this uh, in this chapter, though, that there are some kings who people do like because they do things that are, you know, right by the people, like forgive debts or something. That's a complicated legacy. And we'll maybe talk about that in a few minutes when mm-hmm. we, we get that far. I think what I really like about Herzog's reading here, though, is he tries to bring you into the, I guess, like the kind of the setting or the scene of political power in the ancient world. And you mentioned that it's kind of Game of Thronesy, right? It's a house of cards, whatever. Um, The idea is uh, the echelons of power. Again, maybe we kind of think uh, with a kind of mythical idea about the the very office of king or something where it's hereditary, gets passed down. You know, Queen Elizabeth, she's a million years old. She's probably going to pass on pretty soon. And then one of her kids will just inevitably be the next king of England or something. Um, and there's not a lot of fanfare. Right. But like uh, it's important to recognize that, especially in the kind of complex relations that are going on in occupied territory in uh, Palestine and Rome, there are all these sort of courtly intrigue issues at, at play. And it's important to see that as well, that there's kind of like a whole network of uh, complicated political relationships behind this parable that, again, we we don't have the instinct to see, but. Uh, if you were a poor peasant <laughs> complaining about those exploiters all the time, you you wouldn't have to have someone tell that to you. Yeah, that's right. Well, Herzog goes on to talk about uh, the next character in the story. So there's the king, but then there's also the unmerciful servant, or uh, he calls them, a, the, you know, a bureaucrat, basically. Um, so this is what Herzog says to kind of describe this particular person. No ruler could exercise power alone. Each required an apparatus to put policies into practice. Consequently, a retainer class arose to provide bureaucratic services for elites in general and the ruler in particular. The unmerciful servant of the parable is a type of top echelon bureaucrat responsible for extracting tribute from the subjects of the realm. He reached those heights because he was cunning, shrewd, ruthless, merciless, calculating, loyal, and political. So um, maybe those are those are his like uh, virtues. And uh, based on that, maybe it's not too surprising that he turned around and choked some guy out. Um, <laughs> not a great dude. Anyways, in short, because the ruler had to invest in the bureaucracies with enough power to do their jobs, the bureaucrats who inhabited the fledgling structures were able to convert that power to develop the autonomy of the bureaucracies while extending their own spheres of influence and internal control and aggressively seeking benefits and annulments. Whenever possible, these bureaucrats would then institutionalize their gains. So this is, I think, maybe like a really important piece of the story that makes it, I think, even more interesting. Um, you know, you hear the, you know, you hear the the idea that there's a king and then there's a servant and whatever. And like those are, like you said, Dean, they're mythologized into this different way. But when you when you think about the story through this lens, right? Um, political power is not, you know, a constitutional monarchy with a nice, uh, a nice. Uh, you know, path of handing down power or something genetically. It's like a, a, a roiling group of like weirdos who are, are trying to like Game of Thrones their way to the top. 
of course, you got to backstab some people sometimes, but other times you just have to like have enough sort of people in court to sort of, uh, you know, use their power to to get their guy into onto the throne. Um, and I think that's a, such a like, I mean, it seems like such an obvious way to look at it, but we skip it every single time we read this, or at least I mean, I do in church, I think all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you have this this different picture um, that the 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 servant in this story is, is, is a servant, but like in a bigger sense. Right. Uh, Herzog also notices, too, that uh, the amount of money, the uh, the NRSV says it's like, you know, 100 bags of gold or something. That that amount of money is like outlandish, um, and and that kind of signals a few things for the people listening. Um, first of all, I mean, you know, peasants in Palestine would have like basically, you know, saying a hundred bags of gold or whatever is like saying a gazillion dollars. I guess is kind of the point. But it's also signaling too that whoever this bureaucrat is, if he owes the king that much money, he must be like pretty top of the pile, right? This is like. Um, this is not just like a servant. This is like a bureaucrat who is, you know, um, he's the guy that's in charge of the king's underwear or whatever. You know, he has an important <laughs> job. Um, but yeah, so there you go. Th- this is not a story of just like uh, a, a powerful person and a less powerful person. This is a the the story of like people who are deeply invested in a particular in like maintaining political power. Right. right. So th- there's a lot happening in, in that aspect of things. Yeah, and Herzog pulls out all these interesting rhetorical tells that give you cues as to what the relationships are here, too. So we were saying, you know, if you have no historical background, how do you read this? When you see the term servant, I think, at least for me, I automatically assume somebody who's basically, I don't know, poor or (laughs) irregular or Mm -hmm. something. Um, But Herzog explains that what the king is really doing is reminding this person of the their station, essentially, that they're a servant to the king. Uh, they shouldn't have the ambition of becoming the king. They're supposed to be, you know, a servant or slave. And there's something very interesting about that, uh, especially because, as you said, the amount of gold, I think it's 10,000 talents or something in uh, yeah. some other translations. Um, Herzog explains that number. Yeah, it's, it's a sort of like bizarre, uh, absurd number. But it also signals the way that you get that kind of money is by exacting tributes from whole regions like the the way that a servant like this a bureaucrat like this would have even that kind of debt would be essentially they're accountable for for collecting the the surplus revenue from all these regions in the in the king's land. So it signals to uh, the hearers of the parable that, first of all, the king is trying to assert kind of his rights to the the surplus that this bureaucrat is responsible for. And he's reminding the the bureaucrat that, you know, don't get like too big for your britches. Like I'm mm-hmm. I'm still the king, you're still the servant, and you owe me this money because that's your job is to like get it for me, basically. So the 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 people hearing the parable are witnessing the dialogue between two exploiters, essentially. Yeah, that's right. So Herzog kind of goes through step by step and picks apart some of those tensions in the parable. Um, and I think it kind of makes the whole thing a, a bit more stark. Like you just mentioned, it's a, an inter inter oppressor dialogue. Um, so Herzog says that the reckoning scene in this parable between the king and top level bureaucrat depicts a chapter in the ongoing battle to exert control over the bureaucracy while keeping it subservient to the ruler's interests. Uh, this is important, right? So you have this like sort of high up bureaucrat. And if the king were to say, no, uh, tough cookies, you have to pay me all these bags of gold, 
Herzog mentions that like there's a real worry that uh, these bureaucrats could like defect and they could go to somebody else or they could support somebody else for king and that would be a big problem. So um, it's hard to see it's hard to see what the king does here is purely like altruistic or something. It's definitely kind of within the context of intercourt politics. Mm-hmm. The second thing is that the uh, Herzog says the scene is more likely a conflict between a ruler and a powerful trusted bureaucrat and between them neither contract nor sureties were needed. The bureaucrat had probably proven his ability and loyalty over or over many projects. So there's a lot more going on here than just the story. Herzog says this setting explains both the initial reaction of the ruler and his subsequent moderation. The failure to produce the tribute uh, by the uh, by the servant constitutes a challenge to the ruler. Only a fool would believe that the servant can produce nothing. Perhaps the servant has grown too confident in his power by overstepping the thin line between calculated risk and recklessness. Now, this part is really fascinating to me because this is not how I would have ever read the right, story. Right. Uh, because, again, I don't have the, the historical eyes to see. But um, this is interesting because it is it is more Games of Throne. It's more Games of Throne like than you would have imagined. Right. Like that that this um bureaucrat says that he can't pay the king back this money is like kind of bonkers because like you said dean he's the guy in charge of like getting the money <laughs> like, that's his whole thing um so that this is sort of like a risky and and perhaps foolish thing to tell the king but um he thinks that he can kind of pull it off so the the interesting thing though is that like the un- the unmerciful servant he kind of makes a problem for himself um he he the king says you have to pay me back the servant says i i can't do that you have to forgive me of these debts and the king says okay i guess i'll forgive you of these debts um but it's important to note that in in the in the in the parable like the king was willing to like um he was going to sell his wife and and the guy and his kids so that he could repay the debt. Like the king was already like on sort of the edge of, of um, really destroying this guy's life. So it's like, there's a lot riding on this story that I think is really fascinating. Uh, Herzog says that the king cannot betray the slightest sign of weakness in a world where the king is the law. Everything depends on his disposition. And the servant has seriously miscalculated how both the king might respond to his challenge and the weakness of his own position. And then uh, Herzog kind of rounds out this uh, tension, saying that the unmerciful servant has barely survived the crisis of his making. His effort to increase his power and wealth, because that's what he's doing by asking not to pay back the king, has resulted nearly in his ruin. Of course, uh, word of this brush with disaster travels through the bureaucracy, through, you know, gossipy sort of channels, uh, all of the little birds listening in. Um, and what happened between the servant and the king would be would be spread about everywhere um, with the with the goal of always undermining uh, the powerful bureaucrat. And uh, Herzog reminds us it's a dog eat dog world. So this is really fascinating because this is not the story as we imagine it. Right. We imagine it, it's the the king being sort of bene- like benevolent um, and like, you know, um, kind in all of these different ways but really there's a whole lot of things that would kind of go on behind the scenes um the bureaucrat is trying to kind of pull one over on the king by asking to be uh to have his debts forgiven and the king goes along with it but like the king almost didn't go along with it and in the end things turn out really poorly but uh a really interesting turn 
Yeah, and just to kind of keep the narrative going here, I guess. So the king does this this act of forgiveness, right? And uh, that is also to the king's benefit. So there's this assumption that, I don't know, it's this grand gesture of goodwill. But the idea, too, is there are so many people gunning for the throne that uh, the king also doesn't want to lose a servant that might have, you know, <laughs> made a false step here, but is still somebody who's mm-hmm. proven themselves over and over. So you want to keep that person close, right? Um, someone you can vaguely trust, at least, is better than someone you don't trust. And so by forgiving the debt, he's giving the servant another chance. You can uh, stay in the court and, um, you know, we'll patch things up. And uh, what a what a great opportunity. But what's interesting is the response then of the servant is to uh, basically repeat this in in the reverse. So uh, Herzog goes on to say um, the master strategist reacts. Uh, Just as he was called onto the carpet, he now assumes the posture of a patron and demands a settling of accounts with his client. He will demonstrate to the vultures searching for signs of weakness that he's as strong as ever, and if he has to sacrifice one client to make his case, it's a price worth paying. So the very thing that the king didn't do, (laughs) the servant decides he's got to sort of prove his worth, having just been humiliated in front of the king, he's got to go show everybody that he's still the top dog. Uh, So he goes to, you know, this other guy, and uh, Herzog continues to kind of um, draw out the, the scene here. He says, a loan of 100 denarii was not small. So that's what the other person owes the servant. It represented one half of a Roman legionnaire's annual salary and more than a full year's wages of a day laborer. Few peasants would see 100 denarii in their lifetime. The size of the debt signifies the relative social location of the middle-level bureaucrat in relation to the top echelon official. As the contrast between talent and denarius suggests, the two officials belong to different worlds. As the king is lord over the high-level bureaucrat, so the servant is lord over the mid-level bureaucrat. And if the hearers of the parable were rural Galileans or Judeans, the parable would not have been a story about a great debt and a small one. Both debts were large, one much greater than the other. And I think that is also very interesting, right? So what Jesus is kind of creating is this scene of like, layered uh layered rich exploiters each kind of like playing these weird games with one another that the poor are also just completely outside of <laughs> like <laughs> none of them have any relationship to this process at all except that they're kicking the money up the chain right and like this is what happens to it so it's interesting because again like i guess on a naive reading, I would assume, you know, so God forgives us. And then sometimes, though, we don't forgive the other person. We go do this other thing. But even if you ask me to go do a materialist reading, I would still sort of assume the servant is a poor person. And so then he goes and oppresses another poor person. And that's a big problem, right? God's upset about that. Uh, but what's great about what Herzog does is he's like, no, no, this is still all in the context of the ruling class <laughs> being, you know, mm-hmm. nasty and mean to one another, essentially. That's right. So you get a different picture of the story um, where it's not really about I mean, it's about forgiveness for sure. Um, but there, there's all these different power dynamics kind of bound up in it. And I think that's really fascinating. It adds some texture to the story that maybe you wouldn't get otherwise. Um, but most importantly, it, while it is an analogy, the kingdom of God is like this in a way. <laughs> Um, it's not an allegory in the sense that God is, you know, standing in the story or, or whatever. There's no, you know, the King is not a cipher for God, uh, directly, uh, because, uh, as we'll kind of see in the next few steps here, um, the King is complicated. (laughs) The Kings are, Kings are complicated. 
um, like in the we were kind of talking about this a little bit earlier, right? That that the Bible has a really anti-king kind of uh, streak in it. Uh, even even the good ones like David or whatever are not all that good if you really think about it. Even if you don't really think about it, they're not that good, man. <laughs> Uh, David just kind of like stole some of his wife, and that wasn't great. <laughs> Not a great high point of his life. Um, anyways, uh, but there is this uh, tradition of popular kingship within, um, I think, the culture that Herzog does draw out in an interesting way that kind of, I think, drives the point of this parable a little bit more. Um, so he says, in spite of historical precedence, the tradition of popular kingship persisted in assumed messianic forms. The parable as read here exposes the hidden contradiction in that fatal hope. Even if a king of messianic stature forgave debt of unimaginable proportions, he could not transfer that mercy to the bureaucratic system that encased his rule. There's something interesting here that like there is such a thing as good kings in the Bible or maybe not good kings, but there are such a thing as popular kings in the Bible. Kings that do things that enact policy that, you know, might help people or people might look on, you know, well of or something. But the interesting thing, though, is that, uh, you know, you, they might be seen as some type of messianic figure. But the the nature of that messianic figure is really fascinating because it's not a messiah that, like, changes everything. It's a messiah that does a nice thing and then the world kind of goes on as usual. <laughs> I, I like that way of, of thinking about it, though, that Herzog gives us uh, that, um, you know, it, it's possible that this, like, the popular king, the good king, they can forgive debt, even a huge debt, right? They could forgive a gazillion dollars worth of debt. But that mercy does not transfer into the bureaucratic system itself, right? The structural problems of the society is are still there. And damn, if that's not oppression, <laughs> um, oppression, uh, oppression word for our time, like, you know, even if all of the student debt in the mm-hmm. entire world was forgiven by by Joseph Gordon Biden, uh, not his real middle name. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Our good king himself. Um, you know, it would not uh, it wouldn't that mercy would not transfer into that system uh, itself. Right. It wouldn't uh, even if you forgave all of that debt, it wouldn't stop people from taking out more student debt in the future. <laughs> it wouldn't stop people from still accruing a, a mountain of medical debt. You know, uh, it wouldn't it wouldn't stop somebody from having a gazillion dollars of medical debt from just having like a baby or something silly like that. Right. Or uh, maybe so even think- to to continue the analogy of the parable, uh, even if like somebody had their student debt forgiven, it wouldn't mean that they wouldn't stop being an extremely annoying banker or like a very bad boss to somebody else. Right. Like <laughs> it wouldn't yeah. make them uh, suddenly like unexploitative themselves. That's right. It's like, th- that's maybe a better way of thinking about it. Right. Like um, even though you've forgiven someone's debt, it doesn't stop them from participating in the system that creates debt in the first place or creates exploitation in the first place. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty now that's now that's some wisdom that I think I can uh, I can meditate upon uh, for a minute. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, maybe just uh, filling out this a little bit more and then we can move to the guest one to nominate in a minute here. But uh, I really like Herzog it has a, a way of kind of, I guess, always grinding things back in the perspective of the heroes that I appreciate. So he says the parable points simultaneously to the hopelessness of looking for a messianic ruler and to the critical role played by retainers. Normally, the people among whom Jesus worked hated retainers because they were the visible figures who carried out the policies of the elite, and the people looked instead to the elites to change their circumstances. On rare occasions, for example, when Herod reduced taxes because of good fortune, 
or committed vast personal resources to buying grain for the populace suffering from drought, a ruler might affect the subjected populace in a beneficent manner rather than afflict them, but the exceptions only proved the rule. The maintenance of power required vast resources, and the accumulation of that wealth demanded the systemic and unrelenting exploitation of the population. Paradoxically, rulers were also captive to the system that created them. The power seemed unlimited, but they too were governed by a system that required vengeance when their efforts at generosity were frustrated by the bureaucrats who surrounded them. And I love that too, right? That like, I mean, again, what a great metaphor for our time. You can't even be a good person because uh, <laughs> the the system itself is designed in such a way to basically like uh, dam up anytime you, you try to, you know, release the flood of forgiveness or grace or, or justice in the world. Uh, any kind of singular action you take, even a great one, a magnanimous one, is always going to be met by like the the counter reaction of a much bigger system, uh, you know, responding in kind of like an immune system way to this antibody of like, you know, justice or something uh, weird metaphor in a pandemic. But I don't know. That's what comes to mind. Right. You, you can't fight the entire system at once and uh even the even the oppressors are kind of locked into it in this really awful kind of way yeah yeah you know so the the one the one question i think kind of lingers with me even after reading this and kind of getting the historical background and and it's so interesting and i'm 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 loving it but the thing that does kind of throw me still is that the passage does open with the kingdom of god is like this right this is what the kingdom of god is like it's like a king who forgives debts um, and that's interesting. I guess like what's complicated about it though, is that, uh, you know, there's like, there's an analogy buried in there, right? The kingdom of God is like a king who wanted to settle debt to the servants. And as he began to do that, um, the, the servant asked to be forgiven and, and then the king does it right. The king, the king forgives them. So it's like the kingdom of heaven is like that. But <laughs> then everything that kind of happens after that sentence is like uh, the ways that the world kind of responds to that type of uh, generosity or that type of not generosity. I don't know that type of forgiveness, the type of mercy and, and the type of jubilee or something. I don't know. It's it's a complicated metaphor, though. It's one that is not uh, as a, a kind of viewed through this more historically grounded lens. It's not quite as obvious uh, what this means for the kingdom of God, I think, in the end. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And it's it also has that kind of problematic piece at the end of the the passage, which is um, where Jesus says, uh, so my my heavenly father will also do to every one of you uh, if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart, referring to uh, handing the slave over to be tortured. Um, and, you know, <laughs> exactly what to make of that, I think is hard because uh, Herzog kind of sidesteps it a bit by saying, yeah, well, you know, a good historical critical method says you can kind of ignore the ugly bits that you don't like. Um, <laughs> just focus on the good parts, right? The the structural stuff. Um, I think there's something there, like the way that Herzog tries to explain it is, so you have the king uh, show you kind of what the kingdom of God is like, the forgiveness of debt, even if it is bound up in all these other, you know, courtly intrigue problems and so on. Uh, and Herzog says the expectation, the reason the king gets pissed is he expects that the servant is going to continue that the servant will go and forgive his debts as well. And, uh, you know, maybe initiate this kind of chain reaction that, uh, that creates a, I don't know, like a healthier economy or <laughs> healthier ecology, 
uh, within the bureaucratic system, at least. But that doesn't happen. And so the king gets mad and is like, you didn't get it. That's not what I was trying to do. Right. So the kingdom of God is supposed to be like that insofar as God is trying to initiate this opening, this kind of jubilee moment. Um, but nevertheless, the kingdom of God, too, can get thwarted by, you know, not really panning out. So that's Herzog's solution. I agree. It's kind of unsatisfactory and certainly it is not going to convince your evangelical uncle at uh, Thanksgiving. But um, it might convince <laughs> you. Your, could try. Yeah, you could try. It might convince your your Gen Z cousins, though, and that's pretty important. <laughs> That's true. Well, Dean, we have a few minutes left here. Let's talk about a different reading or a different interpretive lens to kind of think through uh, this uh, this passage with. Yeah. So this one's great because the Gospel in Salentiname, uh, if you've never heard this podcast before, <laughs> welcome to it. Um, <laughs> it's a, a re- record of a bunch of uh, very cool uh, people in a rural Nicaraguan community and a priest named Ernesto Cardinal talking about the Bible. So they get to this passage and they don't have any interest in figuring out what historically is going on. They're just telling you they're giving you all the hot takes you could you could want in a dialogical format. So I pulled out just a few and I thought we could kind of talk through them. And uh, as always, because it's a dialogue, there's a lot of interesting like conversational pieces. So they start out by just observing, you know, we will be evil, too, if we ask God's pardon without pardoning our neighbor. So already doing the kind of theologizing here, the allegorizing, uh, but in a way that leads them to down some interesting paths. So first of all, this guy named Julio, he says, in this example, Jesus is showing us the poor and the rich as equals. The millionaire, as they call him, was forgiven through charity, through love. And just as he was forgiven, he should also forgive the other weaker person and have for him also charity or love. And we can give an example using the words of today. At present, we see that the rich have no compassion for the poor. If the rich had love for the poor and the poor for the rich, that would mean there wouldn't be rich or poorer and more. That's love. So let everybody live equal. And then we wouldn't have that stuff about selling the poor man with all his family to pay what he owes. And God can't forgive their sins then until they stop exploiting. Uh, I love this because (laughs) it's like a great way of uh, sort of stumbling on actually some similar themes that Herzog has identified. Uh, but also just not caring at all about, you know, the courtly intrigue and so on. Like, it's this really interesting kind of example, I think, reading this that we talked earlier about a, the naive evangelical reading, right? You you kind of read yourself and your salvation story into it. But this is also a naive reading, but because it comes from a, an, an experience of exploitation in a rural part of Nicaragua, uh, they already kind of get what Jesus is trying to say, which I think is actually a really interesting way that sort of confirms Herzog's way of understanding the parables. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's what I meant earlier when I said that there's something kind of performative about them, like recognizing Jesus' parables as something similar to Freire's, you know, type of pedagogy. Um you know, this this is kind of performing it, I think, right? Like the Julio, like you said, he stumbled upon it. He's um, he's thinking about this parable and what it would might what it would mean for him today and how it would look today. And he kind of comes to a conclusion. I think that's cool, right? I mean, um, it, it it's missing the historical background or whatever, but it's performing the the task that Jesus is kind of setting out to, right? Mm-hmm. He's trying to make you think about the um, the way that forgiveness could work or whatever, or the ways that mercy flows from rulers and Julio's picking up on it. And that's great. Good for him. Yeah. That's what we all should be doing. Yeah. It's very endearing for sure. Um, a few more observations here. This one's from Marcelino. He says the poor aren't the ones who must have compassion for the rich who are strangling them. 
They ought to be struggling against the injustices of the rich. It's the rich who ought to take pity on the poor and stop strangling them. But when the poor are in power, it will be up to the poor to have pity on the rich, because otherwise we'll fall into the same trap as they do. We'll become like them. Uh, and I like this as well because Marcelino is also sort of picking up on some similar themes, right? That the the servant's mistake is to respond to the experience of forgiveness by then uh, doling out this uh, exploitation. And uh, Marcelino is saying, oh, but there's also kind of a cautionary word because once we're in power, like we should make sure that we don't become like the, uh, you know, the bad servant. Right, right. A good, a good note. I mean, all those, uh, for, it's a good note for all those Marxists running around who are like, you know, we won't, we won't apologize for the terror or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, don't become like the people who are exploiting you. That's a good right. note, always. Uh, and then I'll just read two more. I think these are the best ones. So Felipe says, the one who owed those millions was rich because a nobody doesn't owe that much money. I love that Felipe has already stumbled on he her dog's point. Yeah, exactly. Totally. Uh, it's amazing. It's, it seems to me that Jesus gives the example of a rich person because he wants to give the example of an exploiter. Everything the rich have got, they've stolen from us because all their riches have been got with our labor. And now all their injustices are forgiven them, but they don't forgive us. They throw us into jail when we owe them a bit. Someday, it seems to me, God will settle accounts with them through the people and he'll collect the whole debt. But at the end, Jesus says we all must for- also forgive our neighbors in our hearts. Who knows if we have that capacity to forgive each other or if we're like that rich person, like that exploiter. Uh, This is my favorite reading of the passage because it pulls out what is great about Herzog's reading, but actually takes it, I think, a little bit further. Right. So uh, Felipe is already getting the point about, um, yeah, this is a story of a rich person talking to uh, a ruler and that rich person is rich because they're an exploiter and so on. So there's that intuitive point already there. But uh, then that sort of uh, final note that, you know, who knows if we'll have that capacity to forgive each other or if we'll act like that servant in particular. I think like it's a nice way of squaring that issue that Herzog is not able to square. Right. He he sort of sets aside like Jesus's warning at the end and the the kingdom of God is like this at the beginning. And uh, Felipe instead kind of just puts it all together in this really nice way. Yeah, yeah. Pretty fascinating. Um, yeah, uh, amazing. He does not fall into the same trap, I think, um, as as the rest of us do when we um, allegorize this. But he gets kind of a step further, even though, you know, whatever. He doesn't have the historical background. You don't need it, apparently. Yeah. Uh, and the final one comes from Bosco, who says uh, at the beginning, he said that the kingdom of heaven is like a king who forgives a debt. And then he tells the whole story. He means that in that society of perfect communism, we're all going to forgive everything and anyone who doesn't forgive is going to be treated like an exploiter, like a reactionary. <laughs> so yeah, well. Bosco bringing the uh, the revolutionary fury at the end here, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but uh, there's a lot of other really fun readings and opinions that you get in this dialogue. But I thought I'd just pull out. These are basically four different ways of also like just sort of running with it, like pulling out what's coming out of the parable and coming from that experience of, you know, not being the same thing as like a first century Galilean or Judean. But having a, a similar material situation of being in that exploitative relationship, uh, I think it's it's just sort of telling that, you know, they're able to sort of find in it what Jesus is already trying to get people to find just because they have that kind of attunement to to think about their own social position. Yeah, I mean, I think it's so cool because, you know, um, it's so cool because when you start learning things about like exegesis or like the historical context or whatever, 
there's a real way in which you kind of get like you, <laughs> you become kind of like a snooty person, like where you know the mm. true thing about the gospel. I mean, maybe that's not true of Herzog. I don't think necessarily, but it is definitely true of every uh, every freshman who's ever taken a Bible class. That's for <laughs> sure. But uh, I think what's neat about the Gospel and Sultaname gang is that <laughs> they're always kind of demonstrating that you don't really need to be snooty about it, and that there's there is a way that like these parables are written for people who are um, of a lower economic class than maybe you might be. <laughs> Or maybe that you are, but like they kind of have this like understanding of it that I think uh, gets away from more bourgeois uh, Christians who read the the text. Mm-hmm. And I mean, one thing that you see in the Gospel and Salentinami too is a, a process and a journey of interpretation. Like uh, you'll often see them interpret the passage in a certain way, and uh, they'll kind of correct each other for saying something like the the interpretation you have is the one that we got from the bourgeois priests and we don't want that anymore yeah. we want something else right and uh i think that's really fascinating too because you know you can be a poor evangelical and still kind of spiritualize the hell out of these passages and then just never sort of see it but there's this collective project right of trying to uh name the world around them anew with uh, a real understanding of the social conditions that determine that reading that makes all the difference for actually being able to hear what's going on there. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's what's so cool across the board is that, um, you know, we can get a lot of uh, we can get a lot out of these parables if we treat them allegorically. That's true. And people have. But like reading them materially, I think is so much more fascinating um, because not only are you, you know, do you actually take the text more seriously if you do that, but. Uh, yeah, you get to some conclusions uh, that might be uncomfortable for some readers uh, in a good way. So it's good. Like yeah. It. And you get a better allegory out of it, right? Like <laughs> what I love about um, the the Felipe piece is he's got the material side and he's like, and also that's exactly what God wants of us, right? <laughs> like uh, <laughs> God wants us to not turn into the exploiter. God wants us to uh, experience um, the the forgiveness that we get. And then also keep the ball rolling. Right. And I think that is like a a cool way of just saying like the material analysis can actually even make the kind of spiritual piece that much more meaningful. Yeah, totally. I mean, it just uh, to me, I I come away from this thinking, you know, um, resisting the resisting the parables as an allegory is good. But um, you don't necessarily have to resist them as an analogy for something mm-hmm. or um, or something. You know, you, you can give them you can give them more meaning than maybe what they're carrying materially. But uh, but but thrusting God into the king's spot and us into the servant spot is maybe going to reproduce some of the same misunderstandings and problems that we've been dealing with for mm-hmm. such a long time already. So, you know, there's like a good impulse, I think, in treating it historically. But there's also a sense in which that's not the end of the road or it doesn't have to be the end of the road. Yeah, exactly. Well, there you have it, folks. As always, if you want to know what Jesus has to say, (laughs) first, you have to figure out exactly who wrote the book of Matthew. And then you have to figure out whether or not parts of it are real or false. Uh, Just kidding. I think uh, it's really about trying to have that kind of uh, attention to the poor, right? That preferential option for the poor and then seeing what shakes out in a parable. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. You can get into our exclusive Discord channel where we talk about pets and books. <laughs> and uh, it's been really fun. Don't get me wrong. It's been great. 
you can also sometimes hear uh, different different behind the paywall podcasts that we do. It's been a minute since we've done them because we've been both been busy. So they're there though. If you want to listen to the backlog, you're welcome to do so. <laughs> It'd be probably kind of weird to do that, but whatever. You do you. Um, all right. Our intro music is by Amaria Armstrong, and our outro music is by The Logical Spoon. And we'll see you next time. Church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. Least I would have